This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello there, and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra. I'm Jean-Paul Wright. As we rapidly approach our 200th podcast, crikey, that's a lot, isn't it? We'll hit this in a couple of weeks' time, but you'll know, at least regular listeners should know by now, my love for meditation. As a long-time meditator, I know and appreciate the transformation that making self-care time an important part of our daily life brings to our well-being and ultimately our musical journey. Which is why I am so delighted today to welcome onto Talking Flutes a fellow coffee, and I've just learnt tea drinker, a wonderful musician, Rena Urso. To, to keep things concise, and I, everyone will know that I have a propensity to witter on when I'm talking about people's bio. We've got so much to cover that I'm going to be, I'm going to apologise and say, sorry for chunking your bio down, Rena. but here we go. Rena is a fabulous flute player, or flutist, as the Americans call it, a piccoloist, a licensed body mapping educator, and yoga and meditation instructor. With January 2022... Being our New Year, New You short series here on Talking Flutes, I couldn't think of a better and nicer person to speak to about how we can all make small, or in some cases, big changes, which will transform ourselves and our music. So, lovely listeners, please give a warm Talking Flutes welcome to the lovely Rena Urso. Hello, Rena. Hello, John Paul. Thank you for having me. What an introduction. I'm honored to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I've just learned to, you, you have a cup of tea first thing in the morning, which is, do you know, that is so European. It is. Actually, um, I, I have more like a pot of tea in the morning. Yeah, oh. it's, it's I, I can't start my day any other way. A flagon of tea, a gallon of tea. Yes, it's it's like you you get the things that um, bring you joy and then you want to use them, w whether it's a, a nice book to write in or a good pen to write with or a really beautiful cast iron pot to steep your tea or the favorite mug to drink your tea in. You know, so you you look forward to these things. I know they're things, but still. Yeah, things that make you smile. Let's, Absolutely. Let's, let's jump go. on in. So before we go on to the, the well-being side, which is a very important part of, of you as a musician and an educator, and a very sort of, I'll still say it's not universally encompassed around the world as an important part of our musical development. What I'd like to do is start with you and the flute. Why the flute and when the flute? Oh, this is a... One of my favorite things to talk about, John Paul. So I am the youngest of 13. Sorry, st sorry, stop there. 13. 13. Oh, applause to your, your wonderful mother. Oh, crikey. Well, it is a blended family. Okay. My, my mother had four and my father had eight. Whoa. So in some ways, I think that, that required an even larger applause for yeah, everybody involved. <laughs> right? Um, so my father was um, a professional violinist. He was one of the assistant concert masters with the Detroit Symphony. And he was, he was a prodigy. He went to study at Juilliard when he was a very young boy, and which was the, the time of um, the Depression, 1928, 1929. He was, he was a huge role model, a, a great inspiration in my life. And uh, it was a foregone conclusion for all of us that we would all play the violin. And that was it. You know, case closed, next case. So when it came time for me to start playing an instrument, I was about six, maybe seven. And I was given my first violin and I was horrible. I mean, I had no aptitude. I had no interest. But I wanted to be like my dad. I looked up to my dad, but the violin and I just were not a match, a match made in heaven, as they say. So I sort of begrudgingly 
messed around with it and lied about how much I'd practiced, which was not much. And then a few years passed and I was in school one day and the band director came around and said, you know, we're looking for people to join the band. And all of a sudden I was a violinist. You know, I raised my hand. I'm like, I play the violin, even though I could play like a G major scale, two octaves, but only up. I could never get back down the scale without stopping and being out of tune. And it was, it was a disaster. So suddenly I was a violinist, you know, I, I played the violin and the band director said, no, 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 this is, this is wind ensemble. This is just wind and brass instruments and percussion. And so I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I want to play. But then I thought about growing up backstage at the Detroit Symphony. And I thought about the fact that my dad's very close friend, Clem Baroni, the piccolo player with the Detroit Symphony, would sometimes arrive at intermission for the second half or sometimes leave at intermission after playing just the overture. And I thought, man, Clem has the best job in the orchestra. My dad has to be here the whole time, but Clem gets to like get here late, leave early. So I said, I think I'll play the flute. And I mean, there was no other thought that went into it. So I came home from school and I, you know, announced to my parents, I'm going to play the flute. And they both said, no, you're not. <laughs> you have a violin. So I overheard them talking. I went into my room and pouted and I overheard them talking. I mean, I remember this as clear as if it were yesterday. And they said, you know, this isn't going to last. This is going to go the way of the violin and tap dancing and ballet and karate and gymnastics and all the other things she's tried. But let's just humor her. Maybe we can borrow a flute from someone and just see. We're not going to spend the money. This isn't going to last. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to show you. And the rest, as they say, is history. I mean, I found my voice. I found the instrument that I was supposed to play. I, I mean, I'm really glad that they gave me this, this chance to try it out. We borrowed an instrument from my sister's friend. It was missing a crown. It was a garbage flute. I mean, you know, I barely could get a sound out of it. But my parents quickly realized that, that there was something going on there. And the rest is That's history. Where it started. Yeah, the rest right. is history. Did you take to it like a Dr. Walter because of the the musical background that you had, or was it a struggle at times? No, it came easy to me. I already knew how to read music, mm -hmm. so that was really helpful. And at this point, I was about 11 years old, but I had a real aptitude for it, and it came easy to me, which, you know, now I can admit this, it, it meant that I didn't practice so much because I could get away with just sort of flying under the radar. We'd have a playing test in school, and i just kind of pull it together there. I'd like flip to the page, kind of like figure it out, like finger along on my keys and be like, oh yeah, I got this. So at first it came really easy to me. And then it caught up with me. Like I realized like, okay, if I really want to get better, I really have to put the time in. And my dad was on my case. I mean, <laughs> I, I had a very strict old school, first generation Italian father that was like, how many hours did you practice today? I'm like, dad, I'm 12. <laughs> I practiced <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> what do you think I practiced? <laughs> so, you know, he was on my case to practice. And as I got better and I started to practice more, he would, I, I thought, this is great. He's not going to be able to come in and, and uh, bother me <laughs> because he doesn't play the flute. But I was wrong, of course, as, as adults, as professional musicians, we all know that, you know, music is music, right? And he would bust in the room with his violin and He'd be like, that isn't Beethoven. And he'd pick up his violin and he'd play something to demonstrate the style. And immediately I'd get it. Like I always had this example given to me from early, early on of style and musicianship and what it meant to be a, a really fine musician. Work ethic. My dad practiced like hours and hours and hours a day still all the way to the end of his life. So I had this remarkable example of what a real career could look like. And I had my eye on the prize. I knew like, I want to be like my dad. I want to be like Clem. I want to show up at intermission or leave at intermission. Let's face it. That's the job I want. You made a great differentiation there about being a flute player and being a musician, because there is two really big differences between them both. Being a musician is, as you say, it's playing the line, it's playing, it's making the dot 
come alive. It's making that music come alive. It's to understanding the flow, understanding the story, the narrative of the piece. But playing the flute is just picking the instrument up and making a noise on it. So you make a really clear distinction on how you actually became in love with it because your father was giving you this beautiful demonstration that wasn't just the note. It was the stuff in between, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the it was the love of what he did. I mean, he would sit and talk about times in his life with the orchestra. He played with the Detroit Symphony for 46 years. And he had these amazing stories. And it was at a time that he worked with some of the great, great artists, you know, the phenomenal pianists and conductors and composers that that now we just sort of think back and we're like, oh, you know, Shostakovich or, oh, um, Rubinstein or these these names that are, you know, bigger than life. But, you know, he played with these people because they were still alive <laughs> back in, in the 30s when he got his job in the Detroit Symphony. And you know, he would talk about things and be so emotional. And and sometimes they'd bring a tear to his eye. And I had that example, like there was never a time that this took it for granted, you know, and, and we all know, we can maybe all think of some of the colleagues or, or people we know in our, in our business that it's like, oh yeah, I got this gig. It's this thing I'm doing. It's no big deal. Yeah. Like they just sort of toss it off, but that was never the case. There was integrity. There was a love, um, a deep love. And, and he practiced, like I said, hours every day. And someone asked him once, like, Santo, why are you still playing? Why are you still practice? You're retired. And he's like, I don't know how not to. This is a part of who I am. It's a part of my life. And having that example um, is still with me today as, you know, at, at the place I am in my life now, at the age I am, it's still very crystal clear. And you know, between that and Clemberoni saying, don't be a, a flute player, don't be a technician, be a musician who just happens to play the flute. I think you segued quite nicely into Clem. And what I refer to, and I apologise to all you lovers of this instrument, the evil twig. And <laughs> why, why I and many other people are actually scared of it. And we shouldn't be, because, you know, I grew up as a male flute player and certainly in the UK, very few males actually played the flute. So, or sorry, the piccolo and the flute. So wherever you were positioned, whether it was a symphonic band or an orchestra, you were always guaranteed to be amongst girls. So if you wanted the spotlight, why not play the evil twig? But I always found it difficult. I was never taught to play the piccolo properly. I would go to orchestral concerts. My grandfather would take me to orchestral concerts and you would just hear the piccolo over the top but it wasn't in your face, but you just hear it, but it wouldn't be overpowering. But yet every time I tried to play it, certainly up the top, it would get louder and sharper and sharper. And I never really got to grips with it because I never actually had a proper piccolo lesson. But yet when I watch you play the piccolo, you make it seem lyrical. You make it seem actually easy. So let's go back to, so Clem was the reason why you saw this little bit of wood and thought, hey, I want to be part of this. But when did you first pick up a piccolo? Well, first of all, thank you for that. You know, Clem was a part of my life before I, as far back as I can remember. I thought he was actually related to us because when I was a little kid, I thought all Italians were related. <laughs> all of my dad's friends that were Italian that would come over the house, I thought this must be another uncle or a cousin or something. So I was very surprised when I learned that Clem and I were not, in fact, related, but he was just a friend of my dad's. But he was he was such an inspiration. And I would say Irv Monroe as well, because Irv would always be practicing backstage. He'd yep. be sitting backstage, you know, practicing. Clem would be um, kind of slowly pacing back and forth backstage with his he'd be warming up on flute with his piccolo tucked in his vest. And, and they would always be warming up and practicing backstage. And as a kid, this made such an impression on me. Again, it goes back to this work ethic and, and really um, just their instrument is, is always a part of them. So I took lessons with uh, Clem in my undergraduate studies. I started out studying with the assistant principal flute player, Bob Patrick, who was an awesome musician a man of very few words. He also was a Kincaid student okay. like Clem. 
and Bob died mm, late 80s, maybe early 90s. He died maybe around 89, 90, 91. Bob was such a terrific musician. And he, what inspired me about Bob was that he was the person that would play alto flute. He would, of course, I mean, as the assistant, he did it all, right? Alto flute, piccolo. But he also was a terrific keyboardist, and he would sometimes play celeste. And I thought, like, what kind of a musician do you have to be to be able to wear all those hats? So when I started studying with Clem and really had this opportunity to, to get this piccolo, a stronger piccolo focus, you know, you would think that at first it would have made an impact, but the piccolo didn't come easy to me right away. I played it in high school, but only because I wanted to like scream above the band and <laughs> be heard. And, you know, it didn't really come easy to me because I didn't, I didn't take it seriously, maybe. And then one semester, Clem said, you know, we're going to focus on piccolo this semester exclusively. We're going to do excerpts. We're going to um, play some Baroque sonatas that you already know on the piccolo. So he put the Dance of the Blessed Spirits in front of me. Wow. And... <laughs> And I kind of looked at him like, I've played this. And he said, yeah, you have on flute. Oh my You're going to play it on piccolo. And I thought, oh, what kind of horrible dream am I living in right now? Why would he do this to me? Because I realized, like, this is going to be super hard. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this isn't going to sound good. So, you know, Clem, he was all about this mindset of it's, it's just a little flute approach it like you would your flute. It's just a small flute. And it came so naturally to Clem because Clem started playing piccolo before he started playing the flute as a small boy. So we, we spent a semester on it. And again, I didn't really take it seriously. I had this notion in my mind, like, I'm going to be a flute player. I'm going to get a job at an orchestra and I'm going to play the flute. And that's what I'm going to do. And Clem said, Rena, there's about a hundred million great flute players out there but there's only like 40,000 good piccolo players. And I thought, yeah, okay, I, I, I don't know. So it, it took a little while. And when it started to click in my brain that I needed to take the piccolo seriously, I was in grad school and I was auditioning for a summer festival. And I showed up and I played my flute uh, excerpts and whatever I had to play. And the, 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 um, the music director of the festival, it was for the Spoleto Festival, he said, okay, that's great. Oh, he's kind of looking around, kind of looking around me. He's like, can we hear some piccolo? And I said, no, I, I don't have piccolo with me today. And he went, oh, that's a shame. All right, well, thank you. And I walked out and I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> that might have been a mistake. And someone else I knew got into Spoleto that summer because they showed up with their piccolo and, and they really weren't a piccolo player. They were a flute player that had a piccolo like me. That's what I would have called myself back then. And I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, you're kidding. So-and-so got to go and I didn't. Okay. You got to get your act together. But I still didn't. I still kind of sat it on the back burner. And then I had an opportunity. I was invited to an audition for the New York City Opera National Company. Now this is like 1990, end of 1998. And I knew the principal flute player who became a good friend of mine, Peter Ader, a phenomenal musician. And Peter said, listen, we'd like to invite you to this audition, but I, I know you just hurt yourself because I had just fallen down the stairs and broke my tailbone. He's like, we want to invite you to this audition, but obviously you can't sit on a plane. But I'll tell you what, we'll let you send in a recording of your piccolo excerpts. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a disaster. So I put this, I, I said, I'll tell you what, you have my word. I will record every excerpt, one take, and I will send it in to you. I won't, this is before I even knew like editing 90s, like, you know, I recorded it like on a, on a professional Walkman and sent it in, in my living room, you know. So I sent this recording in of all these opera piccolo excerpts that I had to get up and do early in the morning because of all the noise in the neighborhood I lived in. So I'm recording this thing at like 5 a.m., overnight it to New York. They listened to it in the context of all the other people that showed up for the audition. And I thought, well, that happened, you know, that was a good experience, but, you know, I guess I'm just not a piccolo player. You know, I sort of already told myself I wasn't going to get anything. And they called me the next day and said, we want to offer you the job. And I, I was like, is this a joke? <laughs> really? And Peter said, you know, I, I have to tell you, the flute stuff was, was good, but your piccolo playing was extraordinary. And I was like, you must be joking. 
like, really? Is this a mistake? Because I didn't see myself as a piccolo player. And it was at that point that I thought, okay, I'm all in. I pushed all the chips into the middle of the table and I put my energy into the piccolo. And I was sort of, I mean, I'm embarrassed to even admit this because now it's like, I think back to that time and it's like, how did I ever not get how cool the piccolo is? But like you said, you know, I was a little afraid of it and it was hard and I didn't want to put the work in. It's like, this isn't easy. Uh, Maybe I'll do something that is right. The young person mindset. But now it's like, man, piccolo is where it's at. I feel like I'm being demoted if I get called to play principal flute with an orchestra. I'm like, well, who's playing piccolo on this job? Can I play? I like the fact that you just say treat it like a little flute. I love that because I wish someone had told me that years ago. Because I just found the higher up I got, the sharper it got, the more I'd squeeze my mouth. And then it got up to top B flat, B natural if I was lucky. Um, But higher than that, oh, dreadful, dreadful. I think it's important to have a North Star. Mm -hmm. And what always has guided me, particularly after I moved away from Detroit and moved to Southern California, is I would listen to old Detroit Symphony recordings of Clem. And he just like you were describing earlier, like just sat on top of the orchestra, like this sparkling, beautiful, I can't even find the words to do it justice. This sound that I will never hear again because it was that extraordinarily beautiful and effortless and crystal clear, sparkly. He was and is my North Star. So whenever I felt a little lost and homesick, I would listen to these recordings of Detroit and hear Clem just just like yeah that is that is some damn fine piccolo playing so having a north star and having this idea in your head of that's the sound i'm going for really helps in a situation like this being afraid of the instrument you're afraid and you're like oh my god what do i do with my embouchure if you have in your mind the sound you want to create your body figures it out Absolutely, I t- you know, just totally agree with that. Having, the, I just love that the way that you put that. The North Star, we could have that with our flute playing or a baroque flute playing, or a, but certainly piccolo because over the years, and certainly coming to an NFA for countless years, I've really got to love not necessarily playing it myself, but listening to real piccolo players. There's a magic in it, and when you hear a piccolo player, it just comes alive. Because there is a depth of sound, you know, that you can almost climb inside the harmonic structure because the notes are that wide. And it is just absolutely beautiful. But I love that idea of a North Star. Yeah, I'll tell you what, if if you ever have time on your hands, go down the YouTube rabbit hole and Mm -hmm. listen to these old Detroit recordings from all the Paul Perret recordings. Well, not all. I would say from 19... 58. I think Clem got in the symphony in 1958 to uh, the RV recordings. I think he retired and he did. He retired in 1991. So 1958 to 1991 are the Clem Baroni years. And I will tell you, Jeff Zook has, <laughs> I mean, Jeff was another Clem student. You talk about remarkable uh, piccolo playing, right? He yeah. just carried the tradition right on. But listen to these old Clem recordings and you'll just be like, Think about the way they recorded those things back then. They weren't like pasting it together like they do today, right? It was like probably one mic in the middle of the orchestra. Someone hit record and that was it. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, the beauty in old, listening to old orchestral recordings, I've just written that down because when you, uh, I, I'm sure most people that have listened listen to this podcast, when you hear an orchestral concert, you, you notice things such as, you know, the horn section. When you get, you've got a nice big, big bit of Mahler or Bruckner and you've got that, if we're talking about horn section, the, the wonderful Chicago and famous Chicago horn section, you know that's there. You've got this big body of sound. But what people rarely say is that piccolo player. But, and that's, that's, almost, that's almost a compliment to the piccolo player. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. It so, can make or break it. <laughs> oh, well, it can. That little tiny thing can make or break a the musician, but also the recording. So that little tiny, I just hit my microphone. That little tiny piece of twig, and let okay, I'll take the evil out now. The little tiny piece of wood is 
in the right hands, <laughs> one of the most beautiful instruments out there. So I will give you that, Rena. Well, you know, it's it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. I mean, a flute, it makes sense what we can create with a flute. You look at this beautiful tube of platinum or gold or silver, right? Or some other interesting alloy. And it doesn't, it's not too far of a stretch of the imagination that we can create, we can create on this, but the piccolo is like, it's like, you know, this tiny little thing. And it's the, the, the bore of it is tiny. And it's like, how is it possible to even create a sound on this? So it's almost like you have to take it on like a challenge, like, okay, I'm not sure. I mean, to all the people that are listening that maybe are a little afraid of the piccolo, like, okay, let this be a little, maybe this is a New Year's resolution for 2022. Like, look at this instrument and be like, how can I make this thing just sound as beautiful as possible? Take it on as a challenge. It's like when you play a little ditza or a small bonsori flute. It's like, how is it possible that anything is coming out of this thing? It's a French fry. It's tiny. <laughs> A French fry. Do you know, I've changed it from the evil twig now to a wooden French fry. I love that. <laughs> so to play the play the piccolo and we, we, we refer it to it as a little flute. And try not to... I'm, I'm not a piccolo player, so I don't know why I'm giving you this advice. But I would imagine try not to change your chops too much because that then will mean you're affecting the airflow and everything else further up. Absolutely. So there's a few things I uh, talk about with my students. Um, many of these things, of course, were taught to me by Clem. Well, let me back up before I say that. A lot of people that don't play the piccolo as often, and I'm not even going to say students, because even professional colleagues of mine that are flute players that have a really beautiful piccolo but don't really play the piccolo wouldn't call themselves a piccolo player. And then when they have to play the piccolo, they break into a sweat. You can't just throw air at that problem, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't, if you over-engage the musculature in your embouchure, you're in trouble, right? So you have to find this balance of, of um, fighting against what something in your brain is telling you to do. Like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to just blow harder or blow more or use more air or squeeze my aperture. No, 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 stop because that's when you're gonna you're gonna get that sound right or it's gonna be a sound you don't like Clem used to say think of a swift stream of air and I love that word mm. not fast he would always say swift so a swift stream of air it's not more air it's a swifter stream of air and as far as your embouchure if if you overly engage and you overly squeeze your all the muscles around your lips and you, you squash your aperture, then you, you won't really get what you're looking for. Right. So you have to find a way to let go of that a little bit and trust that less is more. Um, there are more muscles that actively are responsible for keeping our mouth closed than muscles whose responsibility it is to open our mouth. So it is common for us to always be in a state of clenched and closed. So it's natural for us to like want to close in around this tiny little embouchure hole, but instead just see how big, how much you can fill your space. You're not going to grow. You're not going to become a giant. Just allow yourself to open up to, to let go, to find some ease and see what See what you can achieve with less effort. And what would you say would be the best note to start on, just an open C? Or would you go down to an A or something? I actually, with my students, and even me, like the first notes I play of the day are always first, um, first octave. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll start at the bottom of the instrument, and I, I'll do harmonics, I'll do some singing and playing. Starting at the bottom of the instrument, I'll do some uh, repeated articulated notes, trying to keep them all the same size, um, same uh, vibrato undulations or not, like, like a string of pearls, you know, these repeated notes that are very symmetrical. And it's all about just quality of sound, control, you know, and then from there, working up gradually. But I think it's important to have a really good first octave. 
and then you build, you climb. You make it sound really easy. And I suppose in reality, if you were to take it seriously, it is easy. Well, yeah, I guess it's all relative. Yeah, the flute actually is probably the easiest instrument to play, but it's the hardest to master, isn't it? Because it's all about the sound. And the same with the piccolo. It's about that sound. Um, and in a week ago, off on a complete tangent here and talk about sounds and and what is what is a flute sound, what is a piccolo sound. But ultimately, it all comes down to personal preference. And you playing the piccolo, as Rena said a while ago, it's about trusting yourself and trusting yourself to let yourself go with it and just see what happens and take proper if you're really keen take proper piccolo lessons with a piccolo specialist absolutely you know there's so many well there's there are so many resources out there for you right now and we're now figuring out right in the last couple of years that um we can study and work with literally anybody we want to, provided that they're available <laughs> to us. But I mean, if you if if you have a person, if you live on one side of the world and the person with whom you want to work is on the other side of the world, we now have this technology available that you can. Yeah. Right. Um, actually, we have for a while. So you know, find these people that inspire you. That. Um, you either like what they say or you uh, like what you hear or, you, you know, something inspires you about them that you can reach out to them because ultimately the more we're inspired, the more we're going to want to keep working at our craft. Right. And, um, you know, get yourself, first of all, get yourself an instrument that you can, I'm not saying go out and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a new piccolo. I mean, you can, but a piece of advice that was given to me right around the time that I didn't get that summer festival in Spoleto, a piccolo player in an American orchestra whose name escapes me, which is why I'm being vague. Um, we only met that day once, never saw each other again. She gave me this piece of advice. She said, you got to have an instrument that works. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, it's obvious. She said, no, I mean, think about it. Get a piccolo that plays well, that plays in tune, that you can get a good sound on. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting it all the time. However much money you can afford, if it's this much, if it's that much, whatever it is, get yourself something and and then just dive in. And, you know, you've got to have the right tool for the job. You have. And when it comes to piccolo, you cannot underestimate the the importance of stretching your uh, your ability to buy the best that you can because it does make a huge huge difference absolutely actually my new piccolo is arriving next month i'm super excited so what 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 if, what do you get in then i'm getting a new keef ah, um wonderful. i i'm so excited i've been playing on an old vintage powell for have, years yeah. with an eldred spell head joint which i love but um, every time I play a Keef at a convention, I think, <laughs> oh, I should put my name on the list. So I put my name on the list at the at the Minneapolis convention. Whoa. Just kind of on a lark. Ago, yeah. Like, yeah, I put my name on the list. And then my name came up and I was like, huh, all right. Uh, well, no, I'm not ready yet. So then they pushed me back a year. And so now I, I'll be getting it in December. And I'm so excited because... It's time for something different. It's time for something else. And as a musician, when you get a new instrument or a new head joint, it is something different. It is an opportunity to start afresh, which, again, you're very good at doing this, segues into <laughs> <laughs> the importance of us refreshing ourselves. I would say self-care, but it's going to cover a lot of areas that you're an expert in, and it, which is something that... The flute world itself, or not the flute world, but musicians itself, don't always take as important. And the many areas that we can look at. Yes. And this is another area that I admittedly was not very good at for a long time. Really? I would just push, push, push really? and load my plate with as much work and be driving around like a crazy person from one gig to the next. And I was injured I have, I have been dealing with repetitive stress injuries my entire adult life with my flute from overuse, um, misuse, 
lack of education for how the body works, you know, just taking care of myself, balancing my practice time. And, um, you know, it, it finally caught up with me and, um, you know, I kept paying people to put me back together like Humpty Dumpty. Right. Yep. I kept falling off the wall and then I'd go to someone to put, have them put a bandaid on it. And, and then I'd find myself back at square one. And I was like, what am I doing that's getting in my way? You know, no massage therapist, kinesiologist, chiropractor, sports medicine, blah, blah, blah person um, can fix this. If I'm, if I'm the problem, I mean, maybe there's something I'm doing in my playing. So, um, gosh, it was about, oh, I don't even know. Um, probably about 16 years ago, I was playing, um, I was playing a nutcracker run of uh, the run of nutcracker with one of my colleagues in the Oakland symphony, Amy Lycar. And I was struggling to get through some phrase with, with my breath. I couldn't make it through the phrase. And she just said, can I offer you a small piece of advice? And I was like, absolutely. That's why I'm talking to you about this. And so she said, you know, can you find neutral with your pelvis and try to see if you can find your sit bones and let your head just be like, she gave me this very quick um, direction as an Alexander technique teacher, as a body mapping teacher. She gave me this very simple suggestion that was a very subtle adjustment and it made a profound change you said something about that at the very beginning of our time these small things can make such a profound change and i made this simple adjustment and all of a sudden i felt like my ribs my ribs were able to move and i got this breath in and i had air to spare i'm like what did you just do to me did you just body map me <laughs> she's like well you know we don't really call it that but yeah so it got me thinking about what I was doing, what habits, what, what were some of the habitual um, things I was doing and not even realizing it. So that's when I went down the, the body mapping path and I started to take a look at how the how I was doing what I was doing, the why. And Keep, um, keep going. I'm just letting mouse my Bedlington Terrier out of the... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I had I had to put my dog somewhere else because one of them snores very loudly and the other is a one and a half year old puppy who is a maniac and will come barreling in here and like destroy the whole space. It'll be like, you know, in, in one fell swoop, I'll be disconnected. There'll be cords flying in the air. <laughs> oh, she's gone now. So yeah, so you just the little tiny little adjustments, you began to see that by doing that will physically but also emotionally and mentally start opening up profound change in you as an individual and also you as a musician how absolutely did, how did you then start did that open up this sort of this investigative mind inside you were you suddenly fascinated how that would happen because in the in the subsequent years you've done so much and you continue to do so much Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I, I, you, you said it perfectly. It did, um, it like lit a little fire in my brain to be a little bit more of a detective, to become more curious about what I was doing. And my practice started to look a lot different than it had. It, it completely changed. Like I used to sit in my practice room with my flute on my face, just, you know, hammering away for hours and hours and hours. And then, you know, maybe step out of the room for a minute and then come back in and just hammer away for hours and hours. And all of a sudden, I would sit in my my practice room, kind of just taking my flute up and setting it down and thinking about forearm rotation in my right arm, and then taking it up and thinking about forearm rotation in my left arm. And some of you might be listening to this and thinking, yeah, but that doesn't that become like analysis paralysis? It can, if you let it, but I would think about how I was doing what I was doing, like what, what I was currently doing. Did it work for me? Yes or no. If no, how could I do it differently or better and get out of my way? And so I found that I would spend a fair amount of time practicing, of course, still, but it wasn't just all the instrument in my hands on my face blowing into the tube, right? It was thinking about how I was seated or how I was standing or how I was 
distributing my weight on my feet when standing. Was it equal? Was I standing on one leg more than another? Was I dragging my head forward and off my spine? Am I clenching my jaw? Am I, you know, just all these little things. And I didn't realize how many areas of my body that I was holding tension habitually that was absolutely not serving me. And in fact, was getting in the way of doing what I wanted to do. And in, in thinking each of those processes, in other words, how is my forearm, how is my shoulder, it's actually mindful thinking because no other thoughts can come into your head apart from that process that you are doing at that time. So you're actually practicing mindfulness before you even knew about mindfulness. 100%, absolutely. And I, I talk about this with my students. Um, I have a body mapping course at one of the universities where I teach. And uh, we talk a lot in the very beginning of the semester about just starting to become aware of the space they're in. Go for a walk. What do you notice? What senses are you using in that, in that moment? And um, becoming a little bit more uh, inclusively aware, becoming a little more mindful of how you're doing what you're doing doing and you can't you can't affect these changes if you aren't even aware that you're doing them you have to first become aware without judgment of course mm -hmm. and just notice and um you, you little by little it's like pulling a thread on a sweater like you pull the thread and then all of a sudden it starts to unravel and it's it's kind of like that with this work you know you you look at one thing and you go oh wow so when i take a breath i don't need to raise my I don't need to lift my, my arms up and bring them closer to my ears because my lungs don't actually live there. They live inside my ribs. <laughs> so why am I in, in bringing my arms into the mix for, you know, like all of a sudden this little tiny thing leads you to another little tiny thing, but you have to be open and aware of it. Otherwise you might miss it. Right. Yeah. I'm being open and aware of this side that we're talking about now is exactly the same as being open and aware of a musical line or the story inside a piece. You have to be open to portraying that story to an audience. I found, because I was never really into this, I became interested when sports psychology be just started coming into the world when I was an athlete in the, I'm showing my age here, in the early 80s. But really meditation for me and also mindfulness was, I think you're only talking about 10 or 15 years ago, but I did it the wrong way, almost the wrong way around. I should have gone down the yoga route first and then discovered meditation via the yoga route because one of the most profound experiences I think I've ever had in yoga was Bryant Park, Bryant Park in New York, and they have, yo they have yoga sessions in the summer. And I was, nice. I was there, not very good at yoga. My wife does yoga. And we were there with 1,000 other people on a free yoga session. And Amazing. I, was, I was trying to do it and falling over. And what, what was wonderful is it's for all shapes and sizes. And, you know, it's non-judgmental because everybody could do it apart from me that was just making this sort of, this noise as I fell over. But the most profound thing was right at the very end when this very young teacher said, right, okay, lay down and just listen to New York. And, you know, I'd never heard New York before. That's amazing. I'd never heard New York before. And that was so profound to me. I, I just listened to everything in the round. I'd listened to music in the round. At the, the NFA flute conventions, I'd listened to players and loved them, but never really understood that I heard them. And it's made, it made me realise that we don't listen properly. But also the way we use our bodies, we resist a lot and we cause our own injuries. And in causing our own injuries, we make ourselves feel very depressed and very down. And because we don't look after our emotional side of our well-being, we don't have self-care. We are our own worst enemies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, sadly that's true. And um, so I will say for me, it's all connected. What I do as a as a musician, what I do with my work um, with body mapping and injury prevention, musician wellness, what I do with my work as a, a yoga instructor and meditation instructor, it's all connected. I can't extrapolate any part of it because yep. it all, it all affects the next thing. Right. Um, I don't remember when yoga became a part of my life. I remember being on the road with the New York City Opera National Company um, 
And one of our violinists, one of our concert, well, we had a few concert masters, but one of our concert masters was, uh, a, she had a very strong yoga practice. And so sometimes we get into a city and she would find uh, a space for us in the hotel where she could lead us through some yoga. So I know it was a part of my life as far back as 1999. Um, but, you know, I, it was, I wasn't like going to class. I wasn't taking yoga class with great frequency back then because I don't think it was really super available. Like I would go sometimes if I'd find a studio, but it, it, I didn't always, I didn't understand all the different types and I had a hard time finding what worked well in my body, what, what I liked. And sometimes I'd go to a class that was like a hundred degrees and super high energy. And I'm like, yeah, this ain't me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. Good for you. I can't do this. This is not for my body. I need to maybe just take a child's pose for the next 45 minutes, which is okay. But meditation, on the other hand, I have a very clear memory of when that was suggested to me. I was, I don't mind sharing here because I share this anytime I talk about meditation. I was having an increased amount of anxiety as it related to my playing. And I would have panic attacks on stage or in the pit that were very scary. I didn't know what they were. I thought I was dying. I mean, I didn't know. I just felt like, am I having a heart attack? Like, what is this horrible feeling and how do I make it go away? I just need to get off the stage right now. You know, and so you're like tucked away in the piccolo chair next to a bass drum and 700 string players playing a Mahler symphony. And you're like, I, I got to get out of here. This is, this is really um, not a sensation I'm familiar with. So I went to see my doctor and he said, he examined me and he said, you're fine. Everything checks out. You're good, but you're having anxiety. You're having panic attacks. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And he said, well, you need to start making some time for your wellness. You need to slow things down. You're, you're going at about a hundred thousand miles an hour. I suggest meditation. And I was like, I literally said to him, yeah, I don't have time for that. How long is this going to take? Like <laughs> once a week? Like what, what, I, what do you mean? And he said, I mean, you need to sit and meditate every day. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't have time for that. I'm a super busy person, doc. You know, I'm, I don't know if you know this about me, doc, but I'm super important too. You know, it's like, I, I mean, I laugh about it now because it's like, oh my God, did I really say that? I'm such an idiot, but I'm glad because it was exactly that that made me go. He just kind of looked at me like, yes, I'm serious. You need to meditate. You need to go find a place to sit in your house and meditate. So I did. And at first it was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't, I, I can't, I can't, what am I doing? This is, this is silly. I can't do this. I can't, I, I, I'm hearing everything. I'm thinking of everything. I had a running list in my head of the 700 things I felt like I needed to do that day. I heard every sound in the neighborhood. I'm like, oh my God, everything, <laughs> it, it, just stop. I need to meditate. And somewhere along the line, I started to find a groove with it. I created, again, create something that you're going to want to use, right? Like the beautiful tea kettle with the nice cup, mm -hmm. you know? create a space you're going to want to sit in. So I made a little space in my house and I took it seriously for a few years. I really, I got on board with it. It made a difference. Then of course I was like, oh, he was right. Just like my dad, <laughs> another person that knew what was good for me that I was like, no, 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 no. Of course I know better. No, I didn't. So I, I began to have a meditation practice, but then I fell out of it for a while. I got busy. And you know the old, the old saying, you know, meditate 20 minutes a day unless you're really, really busy and then meditate for an hour. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I didn't do that. <laughs> so I, I fell out of it for a while. And then I got back into a groove with it. And then I'd fall out, like on again, off again, on again, mm -hmm. off again. Yoga was kind of always there. Um, some simple, like simple practice of yoga, because I learned certain shapes and poses that were beneficial to me just functioning every day. Just even if I did 15 minutes of yin yoga in the morning, when I got up, that went a long way or something backstage, you know, in between a double day or something. Um, but you know, you can't, I can't tear any of these things away from one another because now they're all so much the fabric of who I am and what I do. And meditation for a lot of people, it's 
again, it's a bit like piccolo playing. It's quite scary because they think you're meant to sit down and have silence, nothing going on in your head. But most of the time, it is impossible. There's always something coming in. And the good thing about meditation is you, when you get used to it, I mean, I practice Vipassana meditation, but when you get used to it, you get a, you, you get a choice to whether to grab the hook or not to hook it. <laughs> so do you. <laughs> uh, we, we choose the hard one, don't we? And um, yeah, it's for meditation. There is no right or there is no wrong. You know, it's not a competition. And you're exactly right with the fact that you just you sit and after a period of time, when you don't do it, you sort of oh, I haven't meditated today. Something it get, even if it even if you have a, what you would class a bad meditation, which is you you've got the monkey mind going permanently. As long as you're coming back to the breath, it's it's fine. It's fine. But if it, I normally find that I get the benefit later in the day because I'm slightly more sort of chilled, more relaxed, and absolutely, it beca- it helps us to become less reactive. Absolutely, it does. It does. How do you find your students, or you know, if you're doing a meditation class, how do you get them to embrace it? Because for some, it is kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about that. So I, I went down the, the yoga teacher training and meditation teacher training at the very beginning of everything shutting down. So January 2020, I started yoga teacher training, something I'd wanted to do for many years and came up with all the excuses of why I couldn't. And then I finally just made the time. I I made the time for it. I built it into my my life. I'm like, I'm committed to this. I mean, it's going to mean making some sacrifices, but I'm committed to this. And then when everything shut down, one of my yoga teacher um, teachers that I was training with said, you know, I'm going to do a short meditation certification as well. If you want to jump on that, it'll be virtual. It was the best gift I could have given myself because I had already come back to meditation and building like working to build this deep well of resilience was exactly what was needed to help kind of weather the storm of these last two years. And still, right, we're not through this thing. Um, I would feel like I was sitting, I, I, I use this um, example a lot and my students love it. I say I, I felt like a little shrub sometimes in the middle of a tornado when I would sit and meditate, but it was my refuge. And so the way I introduce this to my students is in, in my body mapping class is yoga is movement exploration. And so I would talk about different parts of the body from an anatomical perspective, but I would lead them through some shapes and say, so when you're in this shape, um, I want you to think about the connection between, you know, let's say a seated forward fold. I want you to think about the relationship of your your hip joints, your knees, your ankle joints, the fact that your hip joints are exactly halfway in your body. Like I, I weave in the anatomical discussion, the functionality with the yoga shapes, the, the movement, the asana, right? With meditation, I'm pretty transparent. I, I share with them like, look, I suffered with performance anxiety for years and for years I would Um, deal with that in some really challenging situations with medication that was not really what I wanted to do, but what I had to do to get through it. And meditation has helped me to, to work through this in a, in a different way. And so I'm very honest with them. Like, first of all, you don't have to be in complete silence to meditate. In fact, um, (laughs) it's false. In fact, all the sounds around you, if you can sit and find peace and, and connect with your breath when it's like, you know, the, someone's outside mowing the lawn and there's a dog barking and the phone's ringing and people are talking in another room or you can hear someone practicing in another practice room, then right on. Because <laughs> if yeah. you can do it then, you can do it anywhere. Yeah. So I'm honest with them. And I just, it's like, I'm not going to lie and say, oh, you have to meditate because it's like, no, you have to meditate because it's going to make all the things you do that much better. You're going to become less reactive. You're literally changing your brain. You're, you're, you're making yourself well from the inside out. And, um, and we can all use that, right? But the practice of yoga and meditation has 1000% 
help the work. It helps the work I do as a musician. I don't take myself as seriously anymore. I'm more kind to myself in my practice room. I don't beat myself up when something doesn't go right. I kind of laugh it off. Like, Oh, that didn't, that didn't go so well. All right, let's see. What can I do with that? Do you know, I was going to ask you um, things we should begin today to improve our lives, but you're listing them as we go along. And this, nice. don't, don't not stop beating ourselves up about things. Stop taking ourselves so seriously. What do you think um, any of our listeners could do to say, okay, I understand about meditation. I don't really understand about meditation, but people are saying about meditation and they're saying about yoga and they're saying about self-care. How can how how should somebody begin that process of giving themselves some me time? That's a great question. I start my I, I teach yoga locally here in Chicago, um, a yin yoga class, and I start every class with um, a short seated meditation. Arrive as you are. Just be in the present moment. Come as you are, no judgment. So just it's just a question of, first of all, meditation is free, right? Mm. You don't have to create the special little room with all the little potions and candles and things <laughs> like I did 15 years ago because I felt like I needed to create the ambiance in order to do it. And that's fine. If you feel like if you know yourself well enough to know that's what you need, then by all means, all you really need is a place to find a comfortable seat. So maybe you sit on a pillow, maybe you make an investment and get a really nice dense yoga cushion, a Zafu, which has changed everything for me because now I can sit for longer than 20 minutes on that thing because my feet don't fall asleep, <laughs> but fi literally find a comfortable seat and start small, like set a timer, just maybe sit right now after you finish listening to this podcast, sit down find a comfortable seat, whatever that means, maybe your cross leg, you don't have to sit in like that yogi lotus position unless that feels good in your body. Maybe you're seated in a chair, find a comfortable seat, arrive as you are in the moment. Maybe you close your eyes, maybe you don't. Some people don't feel comfortable closing their eyes. Maybe you just kind of soften your gaze and draw your awareness to your breath, sealing your lips, just noticing your breath, noticing the rhythm of it, the texture of it, noticing the sounds around you. And just do that for two minutes, two minutes. That's as long as it takes me to warm up my cup of tea when I've lost it in the house and I find it and it's cold. I pop it in the microwave for two minutes and then I'll go stand in tree pose in the hallway <laughs> while I let my tea. I'm like, all right, I did two minutes of tree <laughs> right on. So two minutes, because it's just like practicing our instrument. Something else I tell my students, it's like on those days when you're like, oh, I don't want to practice. I got to practice. I should practice. I don't want to. First of all, stop beating yourself up. Just tell yourself you're going to go play for 10 minutes. Just go play 10 minutes of long tones. Because 10 minutes is going to turn into 20. It always does. You're going to be like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just do this thing, this other thing that's on my stand, or maybe I'll read through an etude or whatever. 10 always becomes 20. Same thing with meditation. You tell yourself you're going to sit and meditate for two minutes, it's going to become five. Five is going to become 10. And then you can find a way to build it into your life. So the way I always get it, and maybe you can relate with this as a caffeinated beverage drinker yourself, I go downstairs I turn on my, I fill my tea kettle, turn it on, and I know it takes, if I fill the kettle, I know it takes about seven minutes to boil my water. So I go and sit in the other room for seven minutes until I hear the water like doing its thing, sp like spraying all over the, <laughs> the top of the stove. Um, so seven minutes. Now I've got seven minutes in the bank. I just, seven really great early morning quiet. My mind isn't full of 700,000 things. I've just sat and meditated for seven minutes. I go back, I pour my water over my, my tea leaves, and I know it's going to take about another seven. I like a, a nice strong steep, maybe eight. Then I go do about eight minutes of yin, some forward folds, some twists, some seated twists, some side stretches, just to kind of get some movement in my body, connect my breath with movement. That's 15 minutes of self-care time that I've logged in 
for lack of a better way of putting it, before I've even drank my caffeine because my caffeine was being prepared. I built it into that. So like find a way to build it into your life easily. And I say early morning or end of the day is best or both ideally. Do you know that is actually perfect advice, isn't it? Is that we waste so much time waiting for things, hanging around for things. And it could be you're in a queue, you're in a ticket queue, you're, or you're in a, in a queue for something. You can just, you can use that, build that into your meditation. As you've just said, you're, wait, you're in a queue, sort of a mental queue waiting for the, ke- the kettle to boil or the, the water to boil. And yeah. what, you're, what you're actually explaining is that it's actually, we should view this as quite exciting. We're giving ourselves something back that is just us that nobody else has or is giving us. It is what we're giving ourselves. And I know it's easier for me to say now because as I've got older, I've realised that it doesn't matter whether you're a guy or a lady, that you, we all need to have self-care. We all need to give our mind a rest and our body a rest. And to conclude the whole circle quite nicely from where we started... As musicians, if you could use your integrate your flute practice with your physical and mental well-being, what better musicians we will become? Because each of our performances are valid, whether we're Denis Buryakov or Jean-Paul Wright. All our all our performances are valid. But absolutely. But how we and what you are teaching people is to how to unlock their potential that is not necessarily by sitting in a practice room, as you were said, hitting the keys. The other thing that, and this is something else I I really try to stress, another way to use that word, but in a positive way, to impress upon my students, is the time you spend in your practice room, of course, valuable, of course, but there gets there gets a point where it's the point of diminishing returns. You're not really listening anymore. You're not you're just kind of going through the motions. You're maybe obsessing those last minutes before a concert or an audition when you're like, like slogging through something like, Oh, I got to just one more time. I have to test it out. Look, it's there. Trust it. It's there. But the way you get yourself to that place is getting to know you getting to really know you because so for so many years, and I'm sure you can relate. We spend so much time trying to find our identity as musicians. Well, I got to sound like, fill in the blank here, this person. No, you need to sound like you. You need to sound like you need to play like you. You need to be who you are as as a human, but obviously then as a musician. But you can't figure out who that is and what that means if uh, if you never sit in those moments of silence and just sort of um, be still and let your mind go through whatever it's going to go through. You know, let, let these thoughts come in. I mean, sometimes... I'll tell you, I come up with some of the best stuff, the most inspiration, the idea of exactly what I want to do with a phrase and something is when I'm in meditation or in my yin yoga practice, because the thoughts aren't going to stop. It's not like they hit a red light on the street and they're like, oh, okay, I got to stop because Rena's um, meditating right now. Like, no, the thoughts are going to keep coming in. You just have to decide how to let them go. But sometimes you return to them and go, yeah, that's exactly what I need to do there. That that would work really nice if I did this thing. Or maybe in my practice today, I'll try this. It's in these moments of stillness and silence when you just are you alone in your space. You figure your shit out, you know, because you're, pardon me, I hope I don't offend anybody, but you figure your shit out because you're you're just sitting with it. You know, you can't do that if you go, 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 go all the time. You just can't. Because at some point, it's going to catch up with you. And it's going to be like, knock, 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 you know, hi, here I am. <laughs> Deal with me now, which is what happened to me on stage in a Mahler symphony or in a pit playing a show. And it's like, uh-oh, got to make time for these things. And it will only make you better. Not, not only better as a musician, better as a human being, just better healthier in a better place able to withstand the storms um, building this well of resilience um, becoming less reactive i don't want to say anymore because that the last few moments that you've been talking has encapsulated almost my life 
and my life as a musician as and as a human and I don't want to take away from anything that you've just said because that would that would be the same for anybody so Rina thank you so so much for being a guest this week on Talking Flicks and you know I'd love to have you on again and talking specifically probably about meditation or even yoga just because it's the it's the side that I'm fascinated with but also more musicians are now coming around to the fact that they need to embrace that side of life and not to spend all it's not a competition who can practice the longest Absolutely. I think that's one of the big silver linings from this time that we've all been living through is the importance of self-care. And what you do, which is smile a lot, because smile, when you smile, you disarm. And as musicians, we don't smile enough, do we? No, I mean, we're, we're in our heads. We take ourselves so seriously. <laughs> My husband always says, have fun. He says it to his students. He, has, he says it to me when I go to the grocery store have fun. He always, that's sort of his send off thing. And, and we need to have more fun. We need to really enjoy and, and savor and, and have fun. Right. Well, I'm going to enjoy listening back to this as I edit it, because there is so many, I'm, I don't even know what to title this podcast. I quite like that. Get your shit together bit. I think that'll be a really, <laughs> a really good title, but there's so many nuggets here. And uh, next time, make sure you do a class at NFA. I'm definitely going to be there and coming to watch. And uh, oh, awesome! Or, or if it's yoga or meditation, I'm in. I'm in. And uh, I, I learn so much as always, Rena. And thank you so much for your taking your time out in this busy morning of yours, early evening mine here in London. Oh, it was a pleasure. I, like I said, I've been, I've been looking forward to this, John Paul. Thank you so much. And um, I, I, again, will say I hope I didn't offend anybody with my foul language. But, you know, hopefully. And if I did, my apologies. And if I didn't, you know, anyone that knows me knows that uh, you can expect at some point <laughs> something's going to come out of my mouth that's just a little inappropriate. <laughs> me that's too. all good. Me too. Me too. <laughs> oh, so nice. th thank you so much, Darina, and thank you all for listening. Wishing you a wonderful week ahead. May your bedinnery be lyrical, your piccolo practice beautifully relaxed, and your eBay last movement note perfect. Mine never is. <laughs> Goodbye, all. <laughs> <laughs>